Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. guess I'm trying to figure out if the applause was because I used to be one of the pastors here, but whatever. The... Uh, it's always so much fun to, to be here and to be with all of you. Um, uh, in a sense, you guys have sent me out, and I'm working with our conference of churches all over North America. was in uh, uh, Cameroon, West Africa this, uh, this uh, fall as well, working with pastors and Christian leaders and churches and reimagining what the church can be at the end of Christendom and uh, how do we have... How do we become a, a, a community of faith that demonstrates the way of Jesus in a beautiful way in a rapidly changing world? And so it's a, it's a pleasure to represent you out there. I brag on you all the time. And uh, my family is uh, so um, excited and continually to be a part of this church. And I've missed so many uh, weeks this fall. I, I think I went like almost three months because I was just on the road the entire time. And so it's been fun over Christmas in here and uh, be able to speak to you uh, again uh, today. Um, by the way, that little five-minute thing that Travi did up here with uh, talking together, I know there's a bunch of you who get cold sweats on that and just don't like and wish we'd go over it really fast. But there, I know that, and that's okay. That's, that, that's cool. But at least in my little group, and I saw as well, there was some stuff happening. There were some stories being told, and there's just something very, very beautiful about it, which makes it weird that now a guy's going to get up and talk to you for 30 minutes or so, but uh, where maybe it would be better just doing that. But no, that's uh, kind of my job, so I'm going to keep, keep getting at it. Now, according to the ancient church calendar, we're still in the season of Christmas. Um, Advent went up to Christmas Eve, and then the season of Christmas uh, begins. Uh, so if you are one of those who feel... You have to take down your decorations right after Christmas. I just want you to know you have eight days left. And uh, so you can relax and just continue to celebrate and reflect on and enjoy the, the birth of Christ. But in the calendar that most of us are familiar with, we're at the end of the old year and the beginning of a new one. In fact, this is the end of an entire decade and the beginning of a brand new decade. And I know the math and calendar nerds, out there at, at this point, and I know who you are, all of us know who you are, and you're going to insist that since our Gregorian calendar had no year zero, that we do not actually have a full decade until the end of 2020, so this is just the end of the ninth year of this decade. And I have two things to say to those who argue this. First, you're right. No question, you're right. Second, you are no fun at parties. You just kind of got to get over it and accept the common understanding of when a decade ends, or you're just going to run out of friends after a while. Just a little social hint for you. But at any rate, disclaimer aside, we are ending a decade, yes we are, kind of, and beginning a new one, and it's a good time to pause and recalibrate and to try once again to reorder our ways, our lives, and our thinking around the way of Jesus. So I have a simple goal today. I want us to think about desire. And I want us to more specifically work at answering the question, what do you want? What do you want? I want us throughout this 
uh, talking time, this, where I'm talking and you're falling asleep, this, this time, I want you to consider this in the back of your mind, the question, what, what do I want? What do I want? And not just what are some of the things that you want in life, uh, and all those things I'm sure are wonderful, some are probably terrible, but some of them, most of them are wonderful. But more specifically, what is the core or even the core elemental desire that you have, that I have? What do you want, really? I don't think that most of us in the short time we have today will be able to get to that core elemental desire and, and to be fairly confident that that desire is the desire behind all our desires. That takes some time, some, some work, a bit of soul-searching. But perhaps we can just kind of get started at that a bit today, and you can, kind of, you can kind of work with it as we go along. So what do you want, really? And to help us get at this, let's consider a story from the beginning of Jesus' narrative, uh, Jesus' uh, uh, public ministry, I should say, uh, from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. If we just stand, please. And uh, I think it's going to be up on the screen, so you don't have to look it up. Please give your attention to the Word of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. You can can be seated. This is a fascinating story. It's one of my favorite little passages in in, in all of Scripture. John the Baptist has been having his ministry for some time, announcing, preparing the way of the Lord Jesus. Uh, The Messiah is coming. And just the day before, uh, Jesus passed by him, and John said to all his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This next day comes along, and again, Jesus comes walking, he says, uh, Behold the Lamb of God. And what happened is some of the disciples, or two of them particularly, Andrew, we don't know the other guy, says, Okay, John, I'm going to go follow the Son of God, that's okay with you. And so they actually started following him. And by following, it's not some... Uh, you know, metaphoric kind of following. They were just literally following him. Jesus was walking down the road and they were, Andrew and whomever, was walking behind them and uh, just wa- walking behind Jesus. And then Jesus just stops. Imagine the situation. He stops and he turns around. He looks at him and says, what do you want? What do you want? Well, that might stop some of us in our tracks if we, if we think about that. I, go, I, I don't know. It seemed like the, the thing to do. And so he says, what do you want? And these guys, their answer, and it'd be fun to kind of play with this, but his, their answer was, where are you staying? Where are you staying? Um, something in me that it's, there's some core desire thing in there. It's like, I don't know necessarily what I want, but I kind of do know I want you. I want to be with you. So where are you staying? And he says, well, come along. And uh, they went and they hung out for the rest of the day. So Jesus takes, I want to make this point, our desires seriously. Why? Because they are an expression of who we really are. And God pays attention to those desires. He respects them. 
Sometimes it's hard to know them because we are people with many desires, all conflicted and flowing and doing all sorts of crazy things all the time. So here's a little imagination exercise, and you could do this seriously. This is about a B-minus sermon, maybe C-plus, so if you just really get bored, you could just spend the whole time imagining this, and that would be, that'd be well worth your time, uh, and kind of come in and out if you want. But do this imagination exercise. You're at a park, really nice view, and there's a park bench there, and you go sit on the park bench. You're just sitting there, it's quiet time. Not reading anything, not just sitting there. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes along, and he sits right next to you. You know he's Jesus because he's blonde, he's got blue eyes and uh, long hair, um, Swedish. But he sits, he sits down, I'm teasing, by the way, obviously, that how he has been represented sometimes. But you know it's him, however, he's got a WWJD bracelet on or something. So he sits there, and it's just quiet. You're sitting there and looking out for a while, and all of a sudden Jesus says, what do you want? So here's a question, and take 45 seconds. That's all we're going to do. And you're going to answer, or begin the process of figuring out what you would say. Because there's going to be a lot of layers, so you don't have to get through them, but take some time doing it. So what do you want, Jesus says to you. And you got to, you just feel like, Jesus is not a guy to, like, pretend with. So, what do you want? Take 40 seconds. So, keep all those ruminations, those thoughts, those imaginations in your mind as we kind of go through the rest of the message. I want to take the rest of the time we have today and reflect together about desire. But before I get into, and we need to do this, into the dangers or difficulties or the limitations of desire, I want to just spend a bit of time reflecting on how important desire is. One of the most central things about human beings is desire. We are creatures who long. Creatures who desire. And the less we long, the less we desire, the less human and the less truly alive we are. I grew up in the Midwest, and I never saw an ocean, talk about an unprivileged life, until I was in my mid-twenties. And then I saw, I saw the Atlantic Ocean in Florida, and then the Gulf of Mexico in Florida. And then I spent a year on the coast of uh, South America, Colombia, and on, on the Caribbean. And then we moved out here when I was 30. Diane was l- less old. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> And the experience of the northern California coast just overwhelmed me. Um, my, my ancestors, I think, because of my Scandinavian roots, must have been whalers. And they must have just spent months on the ocean because it's just magical place for me. It stirs up something uh, in, in, inside me. When we go, and we go as often as we can over to the ocean, Bodega Bay area particularly, we get there around this last turn and you begin to see the ocean and it's like something happens inside. I remember times of sitting on the beach and all these feelings that are going on within me and they're welled up within me, uh, something that I can only describe as longing. It's a kind of hunger. 
It's a feeling that seems at times to leave me inexpressibly happy, but at the same time inconsolably sad. I feel like sometimes laughing with delight when I'm there, and sometimes I feel like crying, and I've done both. I feel like I have everything I could ever want, and yet I feel an emptiness and a loneliness that nothing could ever satisfy. And I ask myself the question, does the ocean create this in me? In other words, I go there, the ocean does something to me and it creates that. Or is the ocean simply a place where I'm able to be aware of what is one of the most basic truths about myself? And that is that I am a human being made in in the image of God. And God has placed eternity in my heart. I exist. I'm, I'm real. I exist in this universe. And at the core of my soul, there is desire. There's longing. You experience this. Let's reflect for a few moments more fully on the truth that desire is a wonderful and central truth about each one of us. I have a very simple point that I kind of want to make here. I simply want to do one thing. I I want to encourage us to be aware of desire as one of the central things about ourselves. Perhaps even the most central thing about ourselves. The core reality about it. To be human is to desire. I mean, try to imagine a life where we no longer desire. Try to do it. You see, a person who lives in this way, who begins to live in this way without desire, lives with despair. And a person who begins to live with despair, true despair, will not last long. Reflect for a moment on how hope and desire are intricately connected with each other. Reflect on how people, in a sense, will try to kill desire when they have lost hope. When we desire, we begin to hope for those desires to come true. But sometimes people, because their hope is gone, they kill desire and try to deaden You see, when we live uh, truly live a life without desire, we will live without hope and we will begin to drift into passivity. Many people will have a uh, difficult time even wondering, why should I get up in the morning? For without desire and without hope, there truly is no good reason to live. But you see, with many people, and often these are the people uh, with the most religious backgrounds, desire is something they just don't trust. Uh, they've been taught that if you desire something, it must, by definition, be something wrong. For they have been taught that they are hopelessly sinful and they could never naturally desire anything good. Now, it is, of course, true that we are sinful creatures. But this is not to say that all our desires are bad. In fact, just for the sake of disturbing us and perhaps unsettling us, I want to say something a bit provocative. Uh, that may cause you to want to report me to whatever religious officials you can think of reporting me to. My boss goes to this church, in case you don't know. Dan, are you here? He's playing hooky. Dan, there. So if you need to re- report, you can report to uh, him. But I say this as kind of a thought virus, and you can fight back with it if you want. That will hopefully infect our brain somehow, mess with our internal uh, wiring, perhaps even cause some rewiring or some re-understanding of the nature of desire. I want us to consider desire as always good. 
That part of being made in the image of a good God is to be created as creatures who desire, and that all our desires, when we get down to the core of them, are good, God-given desires. Now, the object of this desire, these desires, can be evil and, and harmful. Of course, we know that. And we can be tricked by this world and by our own sinfulness to obsessively desire that which is evil even and, and harmful. But the desire itself is good. You play with that a little bit. You can argue back at some other time. Um, in other words, behind every desire that we would call an evil desire is truly a desire if we were healthy and whole for something good and holy. Uh, for example, uh, consider the runaway desire in our culture for unharnessed and indiscriminate sexual pursuits. Now, while the object of this desire, this way, is certainly harmful, destructive, the desire itself, I think, if we get down underneath it, is undoubtedly a desire for intimacy, for being known, for being cared for, for a deep connection with others. But this d- desire is often unmanaged and, and disordered and given free reign, and as we all know, it brings harm to ourselves and and those we love. Another example, the desire for fame, or the desire to be better than somebody else. This is perhaps, if you think about it, a desire to be significant, to know that we matter in this world, that my life counts. You see, it's not the core desire that is wrong. It is seeking to have this desire met in ways that are what the Bible would call sinful or or harmful, ways that vandalize shalom. That's the problem. It's not really the desire we should run away from, from, but rather the unhealthy object of that desire. You see, if desire is a wonderful and central thing about us, then, then this is how God created us. The language of the scripture is one of satisfying our desires, not telling us all the time that these desires are bad. The 23rd Psalm, the well-known Psalm, tells us that God invites us to lie down in green pastures, that he will lead us beside quiet waters, that he will restore our souls, that he will fill our cups to overflowing. Psalm 37 verse 4 tells us to delight ourselves in the Lord and he'll give us the desires of our heart. Jesus told in John chapter 15 that his great desire for us was that his joy would be in us and our joy would be full. He told us in John 10 that he came to bring life and that we would experience this life in all its abundance. James chapter 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. And throughout all of Scripture, there's this constant theme of reward, of God rewarding those who follow him and his desire, his desire to grant them the desires of their heart. Far from the tendency to teach, as some religious people do, that desire itself is sinful, a better case can be made that perhaps our desires, as C.S. Lewis says, it are too small. We don't desire enough. See what we're getting at here. Desire is not something you run away from, but instead we should listen to it closely, for it will tell us something about ourselves. We were not created to be miserable. We are created for joy, for life. And you and I both know that there are times in our lives, no matter how few and far between they are, for some of us, when we realize this, when we sense it at the core of our souls, that our desire is pointing us towards something wonderful. This world is a wonderful place. It may be when we look in on our child when he or she is sleeping, 
Maybe when we're quiet before a beautiful painting, or as we listen to beautiful music, or when we're reading a poem, or we're watching a movie, or when we're gazing upon a marvelous work of creation, or upon the face of a loved one. Whatever and wherever it is, we know that our desire is good and it can be satisfied by good things. And all I want us to reflect on in this point is that our desire is a wonderful and central truth about us. We can trust it when we pay close attention to it to teach us something about ourselves in this universe. But once we grasp that desire is a wonderful and central part of us, we must also realize that desire is not self-limiting. You see, because we are fallen creatures, we have a tendency towards evil fatal flaw, as it were, that tends to move us away from God. Therefore, desire, why a wonderful gift from God and a reliable source to open up some of the secrets of our heart, if it is left unchecked, it can bring us and others great pain. And we are all aware of how true this is. All of us know stories of people who have ruined their lives and the lives of of others because of runaway desire. Unchecked, disordered desire. Most of us can point to how we ourselves have hurt others, people we love in this area. The Bible refers to these as evil desires, which are essentially desires that have lost their rootedness in God and have been left to freely float towards whatever objects people think can satisfy them. The the scripture, while honoring desire is a wonderful and central thing about us, also tells us that desire must be subordinated to that which is good. In other words, desire makes a lousy God. It makes a lousy director of our lives. And therefore, the scriptures actually call us to live lives of self-denial. Not because our desires are bad, but because we must be retrained, reformed into the kinds of people who can direct our desires toward that which is good. You see, the nature of desire is that we'll continue to strive to be satisfied, and this is why it's so dangerous to ignore desire or to pretend it doesn't exist, because it will always be seeking a place to be satisfied. And if our desires cannot be satisfied in, in, in the ways that God has given us for our good and for the good of others, and then we will desperately search out what the Bible would call sinful, harmful ways that will ultimately vandalize shalom, bring great pain to ourselves and our loved ones and the world around us. And so, therefore, our desires must be acknowledged, but then they must be brought into submission to God, trusting that He does indeed know what is best for us. But not only are desires not self-limiting, they are also never satisfied. And many people never allow their hearts to be quiet long enough to, to understand this deeply. Even when people receive uh, that which, um, you can put that other one up, the uh, not satisfied, never quite satisfied. Even when people receive that which they have longed for, that one relationship, say that uh, delicious meal, uh, promotion, a car, that job, that recognition, that pleasure, that vacation, whatever it is. And even when they, we experience the pleasure of it, when they're honest with themselves, when we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we still desire something more, right? We're not satisfied. 
And all of us can affirm this by simple, careful reflection on our own life experiences. We have a tendency, human beings have had a tendency to make a God out of desire. We have assumed that the desire we feel at the core of our soul can be satisfied by that which this world can offer. And the world has agreed with us and told us to pursue desire, to obey our thirst, and we have pursued it with abandonment. But pleasure-seeking, after a while, doesn't satisfy. Plato described it as a leaky cask. And what happens then is that the law of diminishing return kicks in. And then we need stronger and stronger doses of pleasure to get the same thrill. And then there really is this entitlement attitude that comes in. We begin to believe that the world exists, that my spouse exists, that my parents exist, that the church exists, all to make sure that my needs are met. But of course this is not true because our desires are never satisfied. And our discontent, therefore, increases and we keep trying to get it satisfied and we become at the end of the day pursuing this road ultimately extremely unattractive and extremely shallow people and either extremely angry or extremely discouraged people and often the wisest among us as we reflect on these things experience despair because they see as the author of the older testament book of ecclesiastes did that a life lived pursuing Pleasure is a life chasing after the wind. It's, it's meaningless. So what's the alternative? How can one live an abundant life when it comes to desire without falling to the error of the world that makes desire a God or the error of, error of some in the church that, who make desire evil? Let me try saying it this way. If a desire is a central thing about us, perhaps even the most central thing, and if no matter what we no matter what desire we satisfy, we still find an unsatisfied desire that is somehow beyond that desire that we just had fulfilled. Would this not point to an ultimate desire beyond all desires that humans have? So I'll just come out and say it. All desire ultimately points us to God. And to live well, we must learn how to use desire as a way of remembering. A way of remembering God, if you will. When we're quiet enough to listen, there's a persistent voice at the center of our souls that asks us, when we put all the hurry and all the things we're involved in, asks us, ask us, why is this world here? Why am I here? And what is it that I want? What do I want? And to the answer to those questions, of course, is deeply connected with our relationship with God. But not everyone knows that. So how does one come to understand that the ultimate desire at the core behind every one of our desires is God? See, uh, and this makes me think, why do I even do this sermon? Because I don't believe we'll ever learn that by me preaching uh, at us. Won't come about by rational reasoning or rational argument, but only by experience, by our own experience. And it begins with paying attention to our own hearts, our own desires. St. Augustine said that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. The author of that fascinating Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes supplied his mind and his heart to these things. And he found that wisdom and pleasure and work and success and money and everything apart from God was meaningless. He said that God had placed eternity in our hearts and there is nothing on this earth apart from him that can ultimately satisfy that longing. 
But oh, how we try. And how often disappointed and discontented we are. And oh, how we go from desire to desire to desire to fill a hole that only God can fill. And this is where this deepening understanding of desire comes in. We should not ignore it. Rather, we should pay attention to it. It is a sign that there is something more, and we should take some time to see what that sign is pointing us toward. We should allow desire, especially the deepest longings we have, where it seems that nothing upon this earth can fill these longings, we should allow these desires to help us remember God. To help us remember that we are eternal creatures, that our lives ultimately cannot be measured by the few short years we live upon this earth. And so we should see desire in a different way. We should take a look at God, at the good gifts we desire in this world, and see what they point us towards, what they remind us of. If we have been students of our own hearts and we notice that there is a longing there, a desire that has never been, and we suspect never will be satisfied by anything upon this earth, then, as C.S. Lewis famously suggested, we should consider that perhaps we have been created for another world. And may I simply say to us all, encourage us to test this in our own experience, that what we really desire at the core of who we are is God. You will find hints of this desire that can only be satisfied in God throughout the pages of Scripture. For example, in Psalm 34, David invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. In Psalm 37, David calls us to delight ourselves in the Lord and he'll give us the desires of our heart. And then in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So we need to ask a question. What do, what do we believe here? Is the guy who wrote this thing, like in Psalm 73 there, uh, a kind of a religious nut? Does he belong in some kind of mystical secret club that's only for wild-eyed religious fanatics? Or is he seeing things as they really are? What do we think? Now, I, I need to address something at this point that I believe can be easily misunderstood. This is important. When I speak and when the scriptures speak, everything else I said was not important. Uh, when I speak and when the scriptures, I was teasing, uh, about how our desires are ultimately a desire for God, does this mean that God will satisfy me upon this earth? That all I need is God and that I actually do not have any actual needs. And that I do not have to look to any desires upon this earth other than for God in order to be satisfied. Does this mean that, at the end of the day, I don't really need my spouse, my wife? That I don't really need my children? That I don't really need my parents? That I don't really need my friends? That I don't need the church? At the risk of being misunderstood, let me say that we do indeed desperately need these things. It's an actual need. We need these people. We can't make it on our own. And to ignore these needs or to pretend they're not there is not only dishonest, it is spiritually harmful. There have been quite a few worship courses over the years that are some variation on the theme of God, you're all I want. You're all, you're all I need. The, the, the problem with choruses like this is that they're not true. Uh, as anyone who takes a moment to reflect on their own life would recognize. And to try to make it otherwise would be to pretend and to act in a way that is simply not authentically true about us. 
Now, I, I, just a, another disclaimer on top of the disclaimer. I don't have any problem with those choruses. I actually like them, and I think it's wonderful when we sing them. And I know that the songwriters are trying to say that behind all our needs, all our wants, what we really desire is God, and with that I've already agreed. But I believe there is a danger in not taking seriously the desires of our hearts upon this earth and to hyper-spiritualize them and to make our desires all about God is ultimately a very artificial and unattractive thing to do. Uh, This breeds a kind of person who walks around sighing uh, because nothing on this earth satisfies them. And so being good, suffering Christians, they will take their solace in God. The only problem being it doesn't seem like God is meeting their needs very well. Because they're not fun people to be around. They go around with this pained expression, this martyr-like attitude, this constant sighing. And I find that I like them better uh, when they were looking for people to have their desires satisfied rather than the God, because God seems to be doing a lousy job of it. Solace in God alone, really, I think, is for a season, a period of time. So listen, God alone, a period of time, something, sometimes just a moment, not our whole life 24-7. We go to God to get our bearings straight, to remember who we are, to get filled up. But then we're sent back into this world where we will interact authentically with other people. As a fully alive and fully engaged spouse, husband, parent, child, friend, leader, We find solace in God in order for there to be established a place of safety, a place where our identity is secure so that we can go back into this world knowing who we are and then live and love well. Because we really do need our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, the church. We need each other. We can't make it without each other. And our desire for this is real. It's good. We were never meant to simply need God and not each other. We were never really meant to have no other desires than God. And perhaps there are those tragic times when the important people or most important people in our lives cannot be there for us and may never be, but this is tragic. It's not the way the world is supposed to work. Usually the primary way that God will come to us is directly through the lives of those we love and who love us. So in this sense, God is not all I've ever wanted. He's not all I've ever needed. But He is wonderful. And He is the reason for our existence. And He is the desire behind all desires. To find my identity and my significance and my security in Him is to be whole and healthy and joy-filled individual, joy-filled person. So let's bring it back to John 1 story, and then we'll close. Jesus stops in the road, turns around, asks the two disciples, what do you want? They're kind of stuck, and they say the first thing that pops in their mind, maybe. Where are you staying? I want to be with you. Uh I tried a little while back to answer that question in a more elemental way. And I was at uh, this hermitage for an extended uh, weekend on, out at uh, Big Sur, this new commodities hermitage that a number of you I know have spent time at. It's just amazing. So I went there, had about a four-day uh, little 
silent time. And I got there, and I um, it was it was before dusk, but after dinner. So I sat on the deck that you have, and, and looking down over the ocean, and it's way above the ocean, so you don't hear the waves. You just see the the, the little ripples and sunlight and, and such on it way down. And then dusk came, and then darkness of night came, and just gazillion stars in the sky down there, the stars reflecting on the ocean. It was just stupendous, just absolutely beautiful. And I asked myself the question, uh, what do you want? What's your most elemental prayer? What if you had one shot at it to ask this, ask this of God? And if you asked it, you'd get it. What is that thing? What is that elemental desire? It took me four hours sitting there to get to it. And finally I thought I had it, and then I sat with it a little more, and I realized, oh no, there was something far more vulnerable, far more real that I had to drop down to, to get that. Four hours. I'm not going to tell you what that is, because that's my story, and I don't want to throw my stuff into what you're, uh, gonna, how you're going to work at answering that question. So here's what I want to leave you with. Go back to this picture of the bench. You're sitting there. Finally, you got, since you just discovered Christmas doesn't end for eight days, you don't have to like put the Christmas decorations away. And so you're going to sit there on the bench and just relax. And you look at a pretty view, and Jesus sits next to you, and there's this silence. You go, oh, my goodness, that's Jesus. And so you're sitting there going, I don't, who's going to say anything? How do you break the ice? And he breaks it by asking you a question. He says, what do you want? So I think a really good exercise would, would be to spend some time, if you have it today, tomorrow, to get a day sometime, just go do it and ask that question, what do you want? And that may teach us a bunch of things, and the Spirit of God will help us to uh, tie into uh, desires as a way to remember who we are and who God is. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, and Spirit, our eternal, beautiful, loving, joy-filled, triune God, we are grateful today for this uh, beginning of this new year coming up, this new decade. And we ask that as we go into this next uh, season of life, that you would protect us from simply being the product of disordered and runaway desires. But that we would stop for a moment and that you would teach us through the presence of your Holy Spirit to learn what it is we truly want. What do I desire? And that you would give us moments to speak with each other about this, to hear what other people are learning, to, to get at this ourselves, so that we can, through the presence and power of your Spirit among us, begin to have our desires matured and shaped and formed and ordered in such a way that our desires are become God's desires. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Happy New Year to you, and may the peace of Christ be with you all. Peace out.